Thank you for that. You know, uh, before we get going this morning, we're going to be in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. When I was uh, uh, out of college, I sat under some mentors of mine, some pastors of mine, and was gaining more experience in ministry. And uh, I also had a, a job on the side that I was working third shift. And um, man, I always came Sunday morning, having been up all night. And uh, so I used that as an excuse to say, hey, man, I just, you know, when I, when I work Saturday nights, I think I'm going to skip church on Sunday. And my mentors who, you know, I really appreciate how they held me uh, in account. They said, why don't you stand up in the service? If you're, if you're falling asleep, why don't you just stand up? I go, well, I don't want to be a distraction in the service. And it's like, do you really find the preaching of God's word to be that important? Do you really need God's word in your life? And I said, well, yeah. He's like, then do whatever it takes to wake yourself up and to subdue your flesh and make it happen. And I say that because our students have been up all night. And so if you guys need to move around and stand up so that you can hear what God wants to say to you today, feel free. You're not going to distract me. Well, maybe you might, but it's okay. Um, so I just say that to you kind of in jest, but also being in, in seriousness, fellas. If, if you're really struggling, feel free to stand up, smack yourself around, and uh, pay attention because God might want to say something to you this morning. And uh, don't be lazy and, and fall asleep and miss him. All right, um, Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth his spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if you are a son, then an heir through God. Let's pray. Father, may your will be done. Jesus, may your word be proclaimed. And Spirit, may your work be accomplished. Amen. You know, growing up, we had these, on occasion, family interventions, I think is the modern term, but it would be family meetings is what we had. I'd be up in, upstairs in my room playing um, with my He-Man figures and G.I. Joes and all that stuff off to myself because I, I lived with uh, two other sisters who weren't interested in the cool things um, like Hot Wheels and stuff like that. And so I'd be playing, and the next thing I know, my dad's calling the family together for a family meeting. And on occasion, he would do these. Now, these family meetings often had confrontation. They had rebuke. They were calling somebody to repent or exposing somebody that they're behaving inappropriately or whatever. And so they were kind of really nerve-wracking uh, family meetings. But despite all that, despite all the conversations that we'd have in these family meetings, why I actually loved these family meetings was not so much of getting in trouble but I was willing to undergo getting in trouble and, being, uh, and having my dad raise his eyebrow at me and point his finger at me or my sisters or vice versa is because I love the fact that we're all just in the room. We were all cuddled together on the couch. We had our blankets. We all got situated, got comfortable, and our, my family was together. And so I often, every time I heard my dad or my mom say, hey, we're having a family meeting, I would kind of like come with a little smile on my face, which my dad's like, why are you smiling? You're about to get it. But it's because 
regardless of what might be taking place, I valued the family really coming together because we didn't do that. We didn't eat at the dinner table together a lot. We weren't in the same room a lot. We're all in different places, doing our own things, going our own way. But it was really comfortable to have my family together. And I enjoyed it. And now looking back, I'm like, I, I cherish these family meetings. And it's my intention this morning to kind of have a little bit of a family meeting with you guys, if you'll allow me. To where we're all in here, some of us getting comfortable, others standing and shouldn't get comfortable because they're going to fall asleep. But a little family meeting where we can maybe remind ourselves of what Paul has reminded the Galatians. How it is that we've come to be family. And what binds this family together. That's my intentions this morning, is to lift that out from the scriptures, but also in the spirit of New Year's, everybody's making their resolutions, right? I've given up this practice, I don't do this anymore, but it, there used to be a day where I'm like, okay, I want to start these new things, new year, new way, I'm going to start all this stuff. So in the spirit of resolutions, I aim to maybe discuss some suggestions as us as a family, can we make some resolutions together for this year, for 2023? Can this family, specifically Harvest Point family, can we resolve to do some things? But before we go to those resolutions, let's see what the scriptures might have to speak to us this morning. The first thing that I think Paul here is talking about is he's reminding us of the family, how it was made. You see, there is a, uh, in Galatia, the reason why Paul is writing this letter is to have, by way of letter, his own family meeting with this church because people have come in to confuse them with all sorts of God, false gospels, all so, sorts of rituals that they're imposing upon the church at Galatia that they need to do in order to be considered the sons of God. And Paul defeats this through his whole entire letter. And here we're coming to three verses. In these three verses, Paul defends how it is we are made family. And I think as we walk through this, pay attention to the tone. Pay attention to the language of how it is that we're made family. Look at verse 4 with me. But when the fullness of time came, God, that is God the Father, sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. Because you are sons... God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if you are a son, heir to God. We became a family through the actions of a family. In these three verses, we see the full family of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father's will is being executed at the right specific time. The son goes and purchases adoption, assigns, signs the adoption papers to receive slaves and form them into sons. And then the spirit confirms to those who have been adopted that you are a son of God. It's all relational. There's no forcing in it. It's by the intention of the father. It's through the work of the son and it's by the confirmation of the Spirit. That's how all of us have come to be the family of God, to be the sons of God. 
Now, let me just uh, caveat. This isn't even in my notes, but I think it's very important. I'm going to use the language of sons, and I think it's very important because in this culture, it is the son that got all the inheritance. So it doesn't diminish the value of gender. It's just specifically communicating the point that sons get the inheritance. And so if you're a woman here today and you're a daughter of God, we're going to talk son language, sonship language that includes you because you get to receive the inheritance. So it's just theological, okay? So let me make that point clear. I'm going to refer to all of us as sons of God adopted sons of God through Jesus. And so that's how we become family. That's the point that Paul is making. It's like we're family. We're made by relationship. We're made by the very intentions, motives, and actions by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we're invited to take part and to delight in this family that has existed before even we were created to delight in their love, to delight in their kindness, to delight in their unity and their peace that they have with one another. And we are to invite it into that and we are to live that out. So that is how we come to be family. And that is how we continue to be binded together. See, Paul's making a distinction because those who are seeking to come into this family in Galatia and offer confusion to them is because they're saying, no, what makes us family is our religion, the rituals that we participate in. That's what defines us. And Paul's saying, absolutely not. It's relationship that makes us family. See, back then, we often think of religion as something we believe. Back then, religion is something you do. We do these things. For the Jews, we circumcise ourselves. We participate in these rituals and these ceremonies, and that's why we're Jewish. But Paul is arguing that that has never been the intention of God. That's never what has motivated to make his family. It is not religion, but it's relationship. And that's what has made us family, and that's what continues to bind us all together. He makes this point very clear of relationship, not religion, By Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. For all of you are sons of God through what? Faith in Jesus Christ. It is not in the practices that you perform, but it is in a person who has performed the adoption for you to be entered into the family. Galatians 3, 28. It's not about religion. For there is neither Jew or Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There's neither male or female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. So we're bound together and we're made family through relationship, not religion. A child of God is not left with rules, but is met with a loving father, a leading brother, and a guiding spirit. The Lord brings the relationship that the law could not. Both serve a purpose But those purposes should not be confused, and that's exactly what's going on, and Paul's clarifying. He is reminding and clarifying, no, you are sons of God through the adoption that was purchased for you through Jesus Christ, that the Father had sent, and confirms in your hearts through the Holy Spirit that you are a child of God. We see this distinction very clear when you take a survey through all of Galatians. Galatians, between the Lord and the law. 
Paul often references the law. He gives it descriptors. He calls a law acting kind of like a prison guard, preventing you from going to your logical, sinful conclusion. That's the purpose of the law. It's a prison guard of sorts. It also gives penalty to those who break a law. He refers to the law as a slave attendant, the one who cracks the whip in order to motivate you to get you to do what you should be doing. That's what the law is described as in Galatians 4.3. Paul also describes it as a tutor, one who is preparing you to understand what is right. That's Galatians 3.24. He also talks about how the law is more of a guardian and a steward. That those who are immature, those who are not understanding, those who are still young, those who are still riddled with sin should not be handling the things unless they forfeit it all. And so you have been given a law to oversee your life so that it doesn't end before it should in death. So it acts as a guardian, as a steward. There also seems to be this understanding that the law bears witness. The law in and of itself isn't the end, but it is pointing to the means to the end, which is the Lord. So the law doesn't replace the Lord. The law points to the Lord. And so Paul uses this language, and he pretty much sums it up. He says, see, the law is good if you want to promote fear and punishment. The law provides restraint, which leads to slavery. The law promotes religion and law enforcement, but it does not make a family. Now you contrast that to what he says about Jesus and the Lord. Here, just looking at these three verses, we see that it is Jesus who sets us free from slavery, not the law. We see here that we are heirs and obtain a promise through Jesus the Lord. We see that we receive our adoptions as sons through Jesus And we see that we're giving the Spirit to guide us in how we ought to live because of our faith in Jesus. Doesn't that sound a little bit more less restraining like the law? Doesn't that sound a little bit more liberating? Doesn't that sound a little bit more relational? So Paul's argument here is that it's not the law, but the Lord that binds us together. It's not the rituals. It's the Lord and our ability to worship and have our faith in him. And this is why he says, the law makes slaves, but the Lord makes sons. And this distinction is very clear, for in Galatians chapter 4, verse 7, he says, therefore you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. The law is not even, can't, it has no mind of who you are. It has no respecter of person. It applies to everybody. It's not relational at all. And so I say this to you guys to encourage you. You are no longer a slave, confined in a prison to restrain you from being free, but a son who walks by the Spirit who directs your liberty 
You are no longer a slave, needing your life managed by a steward employed, but a son who receives a life empowered to be enjoyed. You are no longer a slave defined by what religion you do, but a son defined by the relationship of who you belong to. You are no longer a slave forced to work out of punishment and fear, but a son that works in love that casts out all fear. You are no longer a slave living a life that's moving towards death, but you are a son who's moving toward life with every breath. You are no longer a slave, weak in spirit, asking for a drink of water. But you are a son filled with the spirit, crying out to God the Father. No, you are not a slave. We are not a family of slaves. We are a family of adopted sons, and if sons, heirs. And therefore, what also binds us together is how we're then motivated as sons and not slaves. It is our adoption that we are granted all the promises of God. And it is not in our practices that afford us the promises of God. Our Father gives freely to those who repent because they have broken someone's heart. Instead of giving to those who are sorry for breaching a law. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? There is a motive that all of us who are sons of God, that are the family of God, that we need to be motivated by. And that is, when I break a relationship, that causes me to repent. Not because you've held up a law and says you breached a law. You broken a heart brings you to repentance. Not you breached a law, now be sorry. One is of the Lord and is loving and is relational. The other is religion. There's a distinction there. And those things bind us together. And so as we look at this, as we are reminded this morning of how it is that we were made a family and how it is that we all are bound together, that we're motivated out of love for one another. And that we have been given an inheritance of something that we possess, something that we want to live out in our lives, that we're bound by that and we're bound together in relationship, then there are a few uh, resolutions I would suggest to us this morning as a family. If you will allow me for the remaining of our time to point to you to maybe some six, seven, ten, a million resolutions, just six, just joking, um, resolutions that maybe, just maybe, if this is true, if we have been made a family and what binds us together is how we're motivated to bless one another, to live in relationship with one another, how is can we flesh out our relationship as a family this year? Maybe it could be to resolve to establish our relationships with love and not fear. Our aim should be to stir and encourage others towards love, not legalism. Enforcing a lot of rules promotes a lifestyle of legalism that seeks to make slaves, not sons. Guiding others towards a relationship will establish a lifestyle motivated by love. 
We are not out to steer others to just do what they are told, but we want others to be convinced out of their love for others to do what is right. Are you leading others to have a heart for Christ or an appetite for the law? Life is meant to be lived, not controlled. But because of sin, there requires restraint. But the life that Christ offers is freedom and liberty to live a good and right life, which can only be accomplished by the Spirit living in you and working in you. How often do we lead others towards a restricted life of law rather than the glorious life of a child of God, led and directed and guided by the Spirit? Christ has set us free, and we must be free indeed. The Spirit of Christ has been given to us to direct us in our freedom. The law was given to us to keep us from death, but the Spirit has been given to us to move us towards life. Maybe we can resolve to part with our old life of slavery and embrace our new life of adoption. Maybe this year we could continue to move away from that slave mentality of exercising the law in order to govern our lives and we can move more and embrace the spirit to guide us in the right way. To not be motivated out of fear, but to be motivated for our love for God. I'll talk more about that here in a moment. Maybe we can resolve to live guided by the Spirit and not guarded by the law. One just sounds more restricting. The other sounds more freeing. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. The sons of God, us, the family of God, is described as those who are being led around by the Spirit, not who keep a bunch of laws and rules. For you have not received a spirit of slavery, Paul says, leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons which cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. What have you done to encourage others towards life in the Spirit? How are you teaching them to walk by the Spirit? How to discern the Spirit's movement within them? How have you encouraged their hearts to desire the life that Christ offers versus the life that the law produces? Let me suggest to you maybe just a few practical ways we can encourage each other to be led by the Spirit rather than governed by the law. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, it says, if you believe in Jesus, you are given the Holy Spirit. It starts there. It starts with belief in Jesus. And he promises that he, you will have a helper given inside of you to direct you in the way you ought to be living life as you were created and intended to live. Then in Luke chapter 11, verse 13, if you then, being evil, how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give you the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? So if you wanted to be guided in freedom and to live life as it was meant to be, you need the Holy Spirit. How do you get the Holy Spirit? By believing in Jesus and then ask God the Father. 
start there. Parents, this is the thing that you should be guiding your children in. And I have to stand here being extremely convicted with this piece of information that I'm a, I'm a slave attendant in my parenting. I'm not a spirit giver. My heart for my son is for him to do things right, not to have a right relationship. Oftentimes, I control his behavior by giving him the do's and don'ts and never concerned with whether or not his heart is for God. What I mean by that is when we're given and acquire the Spirit, we need to be filled with the Spirit. And it's the Spirit's presence in our life that produces the goodness, the righteousness, the patience, the faithfulness, the self-control, the gentleness that I desperately want my son to embody. But I never speak of the Spirit much. I'm just confessing to you. A lot of that, in the moment, the law is usually good to curb our appetites. But I just don't want my son to be living a life where he's taking appetite suppressants and always loving the law to curb himself. I want him to live a life free, loving and desiring the good things of God. And that only comes by being directed and guided by the Spirit. So we have to acquire the Spirit by faith in Christ, ask for the Spirit to fill ourselves with the things that we need. How many of us, when our, when our children or the people in our lives are out of control, tell them, you need to do this, sit still, don't talk, to sit still, be patient. Have you ever walked over to your child and said, Holy Spirit, fill my child that they might experience self-control? Have you ever done that? Have you ever relied more heavily on the power of the Holy Spirit than the power of your word and teaching? One will stir up your child's heart to love the presence of the Holy Spirit rather than your rebuke and anger and your chastisement. One motivates your child to come to love God who wants good things for them while the other one just learns what they need not to do in order for you not to be mad at them. That's the difference between relationship and religion, between law and love. Not only do you need to require this, the Spirit and ask the Spirit, but you need to acknowledge the Spirit. Don't take claim for the things that your child or the people in your lives are producing that seem that are only fruits of the Holy Spirit. It's not fruits from your teaching or your slave whipping. It's fruits when your child is being patient, pointing out to them so they can begin to recognize, wow, you were really patient. The Spirit must be working in you. And you know what they learn from that? Do you know what they learn when you begin to acknowledge and lift up the Spirit's evidence in their life? They begin to say, like, I was patient. Wow, the Spirit was working in me. I know what that felt like. I want to do more of that. You're teaching them how to walk by the Spirit, 
You're teaching them what the Spirit feels like. You're teaching them how the Spirit works in their life, what it smells like, what it looks like, what it tastes like. And that's how they begin to live a life walking in the Spirit. But if you're not acknowledging the Spirit and you're saying like, well, I, thank you for being patient like I asked you to. They're going to associate that it's by force that they live their lives and not freedom. And accommodate the Spirit. That would be my final practical suggestion to you, is not only acquire the Spirit through faith in Jesus, ask the Father for the Spirit to fill their lives, acknowledge Spirit when He's moving in the lives of your family and others, but assess the Spirit, which means sometimes you don't know if the Spirit is prompting you to do something. I've recently encountered this in my life. Well, this has every appearance to be good, to be right, and to be the work of what I feel like the Spirit's leading me in, but I'm not quite sure. I've shared this probably before. I know I have with the students. I had a mentor of mine speak into my life and says, in those moments when you're just not quite sure, and it, but it has evidence that it might be the Spirit, in faith, trust. Maybe you're wrong, but maybe you're right. And in just trusting and living out in faith, you'll learn even more how to discern the Spirit to where maybe you were 60-40, right and wrong. Okay, that wasn't of the Spirit. That was my selfishness that I wasn't aware of. Maybe you're 60-40, but eventually you're 70-30, 80-20, 90-10. Guess what? You've distinguished how the Spirit speaks to you, and you're able to walk more and more in the Spirit. So assess the Spirit, and then lastly, accommodate Him. The Spirit accompanies God's Word. So a life that's going to be empowered by the Spirit has to be accompanied with God's Word. You have to be in God's Word if you want the Spirit to accompany you and be present in your life. God's Word is spoken, and the Spirit is hovering with it, making it happen and effectual in life of those who listen. It's what it was like in creation. The Spirit was hovering over the darkness, and over the face of the deep. God says, let there be light. The Spirit created light from His Word. So every morning when you do your devotions, every time you come to church on Sunday and you hear the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God, when it goes forth and, uh, and we are told that you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, an heir through God, when that is spoken, the Holy Spirit confirms it in your life, draws those from slavery into adoption, sonship. So if you want a life filled with liberty and freedom and love and relationship, you have to be empowered by the Spirit. If you're empowered by the Spirit, you've got to accommodate them. You've got to be about the Word. You got to get the word into your homes. You got to get the word into the extracurricular time that your children and your, your family has. The more you spend in the word, do you think the more the spirits will be present in your life and together? Absolutely, 100%. But maybe you guys are a little bit like me and you spend your 15 minutes in the morning and then you spend the rest of the day doing whatever else the day has prepared for you. And you're expecting, or you're pretty much limiting your life 
to having accommodated the Spirit for 15 minutes out of the day. And then you want them like, well, I, I just really struggle walking in the Spirit, man. I just continue to walk in the flesh. If you walk in the Spirit, you don't satisfy the desires of the flesh, Paul tells us. And so if you want more of the Spirit, let's accommodate Him. Let's create a culture and environment in your homes, in your life, in your time that cultivates the Word of God to be breathed by the Spirit into your life so that you can produce a life that is right and good and loving and kind that reflects the God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who has made you an heir of all that they have promised. So may we resolve to live guided by the Spirit then guarded by the law. May we resolve to cherish our inheritance, not forfeit it. See, it's, it's just not that you've made sons. That's great. I, I mean, you, we could stop there and be completely and utterly satisfied. But the one thing that I love to communicate about the good news, gospel of Jesus Christ, is that you're not just saved from your sin, but you're saved to a life. That it's not that all your debts have paid, but you, your bank account has been given so much that you can never spend it. You've been given eternal life. You've been blessed by God himself. His face is shining upon you. And we're heirs. Heirs of his kingdom. Our big brother Jesus is sitting on a throne who rules and reigns over the cosmos. And he says we are seated with him in the heavenlies. We're heirs. And unfortunately, some of you and at times me, if I must admit, don't live with that in the forefront of my mind or our minds. We would so easily squander our inheritance that we tend to look a little bit more like Prince Harry these days than a true heir of the kingdom of God. That we are willing to set aside our crowns and our throne so that we can just have our appetites be satisfied right now because we're starving for them. Maybe we can resolve to be a little bit more led the inheritance and the promises we are receiving and will receive than our own appetites that we long for just to fill ourselves with what we want. And lastly, may we resolve to rely on our Father and seek his will. I don't want to move too slowly through this passage. This is something that kind of is a little off theme, but I think it's very important. Verse 4, when the fullness of time came. Let's talk about the Father's will. A lot of us who are sons want to know what the Father wants us to do, what he's created us for, how he's wired us. What is it you want me to do, Father? How is it you want me to live my life? You've afforded it for me. I'm yours. Tell me. And a lot of us don't know. I find it very interesting if you just dwell on this, that what Paul is saying, if you dwell on that, but when the fullness of time came, it means God has a plan. And he's working it all out. He is never late, and he's never too early. 
he execute his will perfectly. We may have our opinions and our own interests that we impose upon him because our hearts are sinful and we are more concerned with our will than his, than his will. And so we grow impatient over this. We often groan and shake our fist at God when we don't get our way. But God has the whole world in his hands and is executing his perfect will and goodness upon it at the fullness of the perfect time. And this requires faith, trusting God to make all things that are bad good. This is why we are taught to pray, not my will, but yours be done. And while you wait on God to instill a guardian to guard you and keep you, you read his word. You say, God the Father, show me your will. I'll be patient for it because I know when you reveal it, it's the best for me. <laughs> and we need to do that. Jesus came, because that's what Paul's talking about here, at the fullness of time. Jesus didn't come too early. He didn't come too late. He came, according to God the Father, at this specific right second into the universe. It means everything that's come before, God wanted to take place. And then he put his son, and he says, wait, wait, go now to execute their loving kindness and to bring to fruition all that they long to do for creation that has rebelled against them. To make slaves into sons. And imagine just Jesus sitting there with great anticipation, knowing the will of the Father, and saying, when are we going to grow our family? When are we going to get them slaves and make them my brothers? God says, wait. Maybe he's saying, wait to you right now as you're seeking his will. Wait. Patience. Faith is a patient faith. You can look at the life of Abraham, and that's a characteristic of his faith. And it was credited to him as righteousness. He waited on the Lord. Can we resolve to wait on the Father for the fullness of time, for his will to be done in our lives. So I suggest these resolutions as a family, maybe we can resolve to do these together, that we can resolve to establish our relationships with love and not fear, that maybe we can resolve to part with our old life of slavery and embrace our new life of adoption that maybe we can resolve to live guided by the Spirit and not guarded by the law. Maybe we can resolve to cherish our inheritance rather than forfeit it. Maybe we can resolve together to rely on our Father and to seek His will. This morning we have an opportunity to be reminded of our adoption as sons and how it is that we were purchased, how the adoption papers were signed, how we were bought for a price. And then when we come to this table, it's a family table. 
the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit invite you to break bread with them because we're heirs and we get to an inheritance that we get to enjoy forever and we get to do this as a family forever. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for executing at the perfect time your will. We thank you, Jesus, for affording us our adoption. And we thank you, Spirit, for making it so evident and clear that we have been made the very sons of the living, true God and have been made heirs and inherit all that he has built and created. Thank you. We worship you. May we resolve today as this family at Harvest Point that each and every one of us would stir each other up and remind each other how it is that you have made us sons and what binds us all together. May we be about love more than law. More importantly, Father, will you guide us by sending your Holy Spirit to us that directs us in the way we ought to live life to the fullest. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.